Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day, this beautiful morning here at camp. We thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy and the focus on your word. We pray once again that you would send your spirit to hover over this campground. Bless the speakers and all of the seminars and meetings. Protect the children and help them see Jesus. And Lord, I want to personally thank you for the opportunity to present this seminar on the Reformation. And so we ask you to bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> My wife and I so much enjoy camp meeting. And we're so happy that we were able to be here this year. <clears throat> it's part of our tradition. You know, there's good tradition and bad tradition. When the Lord found me, I, I joined the... Uh, St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Waukegan, Illinois, my hometown. <clears throat> By the way, my father and I had built that church a few years earlier. I remember when I laid the first brick on the corner, I put a penny under it. And I said, this is so this church never goes broke. <clears throat> but um, that was part of the Finnish Evangelical Lutheran Church. And uh, they had Bible camps. That's what they were called. And the focus was on the Bible. They had meetings like we have here. And we went every year. In fact, <clears throat> when my wife, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> was growing up, and in her teens especially, she went every year to youth camp, youth Bible camp. <clears throat> and later in the early 1960s, the Finnish church merged with the Swedish Lutheran church and the Danish and, and a German branch. And gradually over the years, the Bible camp tradition disappeared. I remember when I was in my first Lutheran parish in the UP, <clears throat> we went to Fortune Lake Bible Camp. Fortune Lake is not very far from Crystal Falls. And I even spoke there more than, on, more than, on more than one occasion. <clears throat> but now as we drive past Fortune Lake on our way to Camp Segola, to the UP camps, the, the uh, Lutheran camp is still there, but it's not called a Bible camp anymore. It's just called a Lutheran camp. And there's always a sign there announcing folk dancing. <laughs> See what's happening. <clears throat> but so we enjoy camp meetings. I hope this tradition never changes. 
Well, just to summarize what we were talking about when we finished yesterday, you remember Luther was at the Wartburg Castle under the protection of the elector of Saxony, Frederick, and he began to get word that there were things happening back in Wittenberg that disturbed him. I don't think Luther wanted violence connected with the Reformation. But when it happened, I don't think he, I don't think he was surprised. <clears throat> but it bothered him. And near the end of that first year, when he was at at uh, Wartburg, uh, the congregation in Wittenberg, where he preached every week, uh, and also the town council begged him to come back. And the elector was opposed to that. He, he thought it would provoke more disorder, but <clears throat> Luther was very concerned about what was going on. There were a lot of changes taking place. Um, one change rapidly following another. For example, priests and nuns were marrying and the monks were leaving their cloisters, and <clears throat> uh, they began giving wine and communion to the people, not just the bread. Uh, they didn't go to confession before they communed. <clears throat> uh, German was used rather than Latin in the Mass. Uh, all kinds of things. And up until that time, the Reformation had affected mostly the clergy and the scholars, theologians. But gradually, the people began to realize that it really meant something for them. And uh, it was not just a debate among scholars, but influenced their, their daily lives. Now, while Luther certainly supported the kind of changes that were taking place, he worried that things are getting out of hand. And what concerned him the most was that the Reformation would lose sight of the gospel message. And the worst of it was the violence that, it, that erupted in Wittenberg against Catholic people who were being referred to as the old believers. And sometimes people with knives hidden under their, under their clothing uh, invaded the parish church there and they drove out the priests. And stones were thrown at people that were saying the rosary. The altars in the church were overturned. Images and pictures were being smashed and destroyed. And Luther blamed a lot of that on his colleague, Andreas Karlstedt, who had preached some rather inflammatory sermons while Luther was at the Wartburg. It was, it was Karlstedt's opinion 
that things like organs and trumpets and flutes were also to be thrown out of the church. And uh, the elector, Frederick of Saxony, he was in a dilemma. Because on the one hand, he was responsible for public peace and order, but as a Christian, he was also concerned about the true faith. He believed in the Reformation and what Luther had been teaching and preaching. And he was afraid that if Luther returned, his presence would incite more riots. And that he himself, the elector, would be in danger. And so he told Luther that you should stay in, at Wartburg. Don't come back. But Luther was determined to return. He didn't like the violence. And he wrote to the elector Frederick, he said, quote, I cannot yield an inch to the devil. He believed that the very future of the Reformation was at stake because of the violence. People were rioting, destroying church property, threatening the lives of priests and, and of those who chose to remain Catholic. <clears throat> and Luther, he, he said, that kind of behavior is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus. Christian liberty did not mean the right to threaten or harm people because of their religious beliefs. He saw that kind of behavior as rebellion against God himself. And this is not what he wanted. And so... He, he said, I have to go back and try to restore confidence and order. And so he did. He went back and he claimed his pulpit again in the Wittenberg church. And he preached a memorable sermon. And he revealed his pastoral heart. And with a very pleasant voice, not harsh, not angry, not bombastic, he urged the congregation to practice love patience, and consideration for others. And he told the congregation, which by the way was almost the whole town, that no person can die for another person, another, another, 
I'm, what I mean to say is <clears throat> each person dies for themselves. No, you can't take another person's place in death. And no one can believe for another. And nobody, no one can answer for another. We each have to answer for ourselves. And he told them that every person has to be persuaded in his own mind. Nobody can be intimidated or coerced into belief. Smashing images and dragging priests out of the church was to Luther a greater blow to the principles of the Reformation than any blow that was ever dealt against him by the church. or by the papacy. And so in his sermon, he pleaded with, with, the, with the congregation to give people time that violence betrays a lack of confidence in God. And he reminded them that all he had done was to pray and preach. He said, the word of God does it all, not violence, truth, when truth prevails. He said to them, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. And then he said, let us preach. The rest belongs to God. And he said, God does more by his word alone than you and I and all the world by our united strength. God lays hold, he said, upon the heart and when the heart is taken, everything is one. Reminds me of that statement that I read, I think, on Monday from Second Timothy. That was that's read at all ordination services. Preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Exhort, convince, rebuke, but all out of love. And so that sermon, in, in practical terms, was more representative of the fact that the just shall live by faith than anything he had said or written to theologians or to the Pope or to the Emperor. It took an act of bravery, I think, on his part to 
leave the protection of Wartburg and go back to Wittenberg? Imagine what might have happened if he hadn't done that. The Reformation could have died right there because it was out of harmony with God's will. It, but it took an even greater act of bravery on his part to admonish his followers at such a critical moment. Which tells us that Luther was a true man of God. Everything that he had worked for, everything the Lord had accomplished through him, was on the verge of being destroyed. <clears throat> and his life and his faith were on the line. I think uh, it would be appropriate to say that that sermon put shoes on the Reformation. Because the gospel is not just something to, to believe with the intellect, but with the heart. The gospel is to have an effect on how we live how we relate to others and behave in the world as representatives of Christ. Those who have been justified by grace through faith in Christ are to live like justified people. Live like Christ. <clears throat> the church certainly wasn't behaving like that toward him. And that does not justify that kind of behavior against them. So Luther's role had dramatically changed with his teaching and his preaching he had been tearing down false doctrine and ecclesiastical tradition. And now he must, using the same means, teaching and preaching, lead the, lead the church into a build, to the building up of church and society. And once again, he faced down the devil. Because who was really behind all of this? That's the way the devil behaves.
and using that powerful principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, the word alone, to do it. <clears throat> Preach the word. Teach the word. The word does the exhorting. The word does the rebuking. The word brings about the right kind of change. Change that is in harmony with the word. And it gave a lot of credibility to Luther and to the Reformation. He would not have the reputation that he has today if he had gone back to Wittenberg and really stirred things up, you know, and told them, you're doing the right thing, you know. Destroy it, kill it. He, it gave credibility when he stuck to the word and to his conscience and to a principle that's based on that word alone. And so, following his master, Luther adopted Christ's method and in effect said, it is written. He said it to the Pope, to his own followers, when they were getting out of line, You remember that when Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven that said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17 And it was right after that affirmation from God himself that the devil got busy. Tempting Jesus to deviate from the Father's will. And that's exactly what the devil does with us. He tempts us to deviate from the Father's will as revealed in his word for the sake of all kinds of things. <clears throat> but three times... In response, Jesus said to the devil, it is written. And the third time he said this, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4, 11. And then the text says, then <coughs> then the devil left him. And angels came and attended to him. Now, what is the spiritual lesson here? That are that's exemplified by Jesus and Luther. 
First of all, it is that our defense against Satan is the Word of God. <coughs> alone. And that implies knowledge of the Word so that Satan cannot fool us and deceive us. If you don't know the truth, then Satan has a, an opening. Secondly, the second spiritual lesson is that by the authority of that word alone, we take an active faith position against Satan and command him to leave us alone. Away from me, Satan. And the third spiritual lesson is that because he is the defeated enemy, Satan cannot prevail against the word of God and against the faith of God's people when their faith rests on that word. Unmovable. Satan has to flee. He has no other recourse. The power is in the word. I used to remind my preaching students when I was teaching at the seminary that the power is in the word, not in the preacher. It has nothing to do with how loud we talk or How, you know, our gestures or the mechanics of the sermon, how it's put together. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with does the sermon, is the sermon true to the word? And then the fourth lesson, spiritual lesson, that was exemplified by Jesus and by Luther. <clears throat> and when we're true to the word, angels will come and attend to us. Not an inch to the devil, Luther said. Give him an inch and it'll take a mile. Is that right? Listen to this from the Great Controversy. Page 178, quote, counterfeit holiness, spurious sanctification, is still doing its work of deception. Under various forms, it exhibits the same spirit as in the days of Luther diverting minds from the scriptures and leading men and women 
to follow their own feelings and impressions rather than to yield obedience to the law of God. And when she uses that phrase, law of God, she's not just talking about the Ten Commandments, she's talking about the whole scripture. And then she says, this is one of Satan's most successful devices to cast reproach upon purity and truth. I don't think very many people really know and understand the vital issues that were taking place back there in 1517 and onward. Now I want to talk to you about some amazing facts. <clears throat> this is part of my personal testimony. When Luther kindled the fire of the Reformation on October 31, 1517, he was not alone. In fact, it had been smoldering for some time before Luther ever was born. As we mentioned earlier, the times were rife with corruption in the church itself. Immorality among the priesthood was rampant, as was superstition among the people. For example, Christ was seen as sent by God to punish guilty sinners, not to save them. He was seen as being too holy to be approached even in prayer. So somebody had to be found who could intercede with Jesus. Why not Mary, his mother? But she too was considered too sacred. So another intercessor was needed. Why not Mary's mother, Anna? So people prayed to Anna, who interceded with Mary, who interceded with her son, Jesus, who interceded with God the Father for sinners. And then you can add to that all of the other saints. It was incredible. But that was <clears throat> the kind of superstitious beliefs on which people were being spiritually nourished. And so there was a growing yearning for a more personal and inward religious experience. 
And so the Reformation succeeded at that point in time. It was the right time because it came at a time when thinkers throughout Europe began to sense that something was radically wrong with the church. And people were in need of personal spiritual awakening. We owe a lot to Martin Luther, especially his uncovering of the good news that we're justified by grace through faith. And that great and central Bible truth was Luther's great passion because it had changed his own life first. He believed it was his mission to preserve that message and to preach it. Now let me just put in a little footnote right here. <clears throat> Justification by grace alone is a basic and crucial biblical doctrine or theological issue. But it is not the whole of the Christian faith. It is meant to produce a faith experience that is in harmony with the truth of it. And so we're always under the examination of the word when it comes to our faith experience. So, end of the footnote. Though it was Luther who was the one who kindled the fire of the Reformation, he was not the only reformer. There were others. Let me mention some. <clears throat> John Wycliffe, for example, who helped translate the Bible into English in England. And then there was John Huss in Bohemia, who was burned at the stake because of his faith in 1415, 100 years earlier. And then Savonarola in Italy, who was executed in 1498 because of his faith. And Erasmus in Holland, who published the New Testament in Greek, which was used later by Luther for his German Bible. And then there was William Tyndale in England, who was burned at the stake in 1536 for his faith. By the way, um, the two people that were vital in our becoming Seventh-day Adventists 
Dr. Victor and Bertha Bigford. He was a dentist in Wakefield when I was pastor in Bessemer. He, uh, his ancestors were from England and he wanted to have a, he wanted to do a, a research on his ancestry. And it was rather extensive and it took some time and it cost some money. But lo and behold, he discovered that William Tyndale was in his ancestry. He was related to William, William Tyndale. And then there was John Calvin in Switzerland. Philip Melanchthon at Wittenberg. Ulrich Zwingli of Switzerland, with whom Luther contended over the Lord's Supper at Marburg in 1529. And they, they met together to try to find some re resolution. And they, they were arguing, discussing over the meaning of a three-letter Latin word, est, E-S-T, is. They were arguing over the text, Matthew 26, 26 and 28, which is the reference to the Lord's Supper. And it says, this is my body. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. The New Testament and my blood. Luther argued that Christ's body and blood are physically present in the Lord's Supper. The way he put it was that Christ's body and blood are present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. And that view was referred to as consubstantiation. The Catholic view is transubstantiation. But for, for Zwingli, that Latin word est meant signifies. Uh, tradition has it that in preparing for that debate with Zwingli, <clears throat> before they came into the room, both of them, Luther, had thrown back the cloth on the table and had written in chalk on the table. I can't remember how it goes in Latin now. But he wrote a Latin text, huh? Can you? Hoc est meum. Yeah. Thank you. And then he put the cover back and in the midst of the debate when it came to that point, he flipped the cover over and he pointed to it and he said, this is what the Lord says. <clears throat> well, while Luther uncovered a lot that had been buried under accumulated traditions and the dogma of medieval Catholicism, he was only one man who lived one lifetime. But I, I want to add something here. Uh, I wrote a book on worship was published by Andrews University Press, and 
I have a chapter on it also in my latest book, The Road I Travel. I call worship the heartbeat of the church. And I point out what Ellen White says. When you read Ellen White's uh, material on the Lord's Supper, especially in Desire of Ages, you will discover a unique view of the Lord's Supper. Now the question between Zwingli and Luther was, is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? But even beyond that, how is he present? Now, and I was able to share this with some of our theologians at the seminary when I was there. And some of them hadn't even noticed it before. But for Ellen White, Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper and in the foot washing. But he's not present in the water or in the bread or in the wine. He's present in the eating and the drinking and in the washing. In other words, Jesus, she says, he's present in the foot washing and in the Lord's Supper. He's present in the body of Christ in their eating and drinking, in this act of faith. And that's a marvelous insight. Because when you read the text in Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he, I think he focuses more on do this than on this is. Look it up yourself. So, Jesus is present when we commune. But he's present in the eating and in the drinking in the fellowship, in the corporate participation in this service. Well, anyway, while Luther uncovered a lot that had been buried in medieval Catholicism, he was only one man who lived one lifetime. The Reformation that began that day in 1517 and which, according to Ellen White, was to increase in brightness to the end of time, is still unfinished business. By the way, we hear a lot today about the emerging church, which is a deception, by the way. The Seventh-day Adventist church is the emerging church. It emerged out of Protestantism in the middle of the 19th century. In God's time. Because in his will, it was needed. It's still needed. And we have to be careful that we don't succumb to the temptations you know, that might come to us from whatever source. It's unfinished business. And that's exactly why the Advent movement emerged over, over 150 years ago. To increase that brightness, to use her words. 
Why? Listen to this. Great Controversy, page 204-205. Because, quote, in our times, there is a wide departure from Bible doctrines. There is a need of a return. She's saying this to the churches not just Catholicism, but to the Protestants. There is a need of a return to the same unswerving allegiance to the word of God manifested at that crisis of the Reformation. Now, I want you to listen to this very perceptive analysis that was published in 2004 by a man by, made by the name of John H. Kalberer, K-A-E-L-B-E-R-E-R, -E -E his name is spelled. He wrote a book entitled The Not-So-Silent Merger. He's writing about the merger of churches. It's uh, the ecumenical spirit. And on pages 20 and 21, I found this. The churches that have stood for decades as the mainline denominations of America have drastically changed. Methodist, Episcopal, Congregational, and the United Church of Christ, along with some liberal denominations within the Presbyterian, Baptist, and Lutheran mix, as well as many others, no longer stand doctrinally where they stood just 50 years ago. Following the lead of liberal theologians who have demythologized the Bible, abandoning its authority, denying the miracles of the virgin birth and the resurrection, and trashing as uncongenial any biblical doctrine contrary to the modern-day liberated lifestyle, Think about that. These denominations have betrayed their divine calling to be the true body of Jesus Christ, the Christian church, which God brought into being at Pentecost. He goes on, their membership and finances are no longer where they were even 20 years ago. Christian spirituality vanishes as well. And for those old-timers who remain within these denominations, there are the very haunting questions. What is going on in my church? What has happened? End of quote. 
Now, it's no exaggeration to say that Luther changed the course of history. His life and his witness was a manifestation of God's gracious intervention in human affairs. It demonstrates how God raises up both the message and the mission and the messengers needed at certain points in time. And now we have to carry on what he began and remain true to sola scriptura until the end of time, as Ellen White puts it. And we find that emphasis over and over again in Luther's writings. He read and he studied his Bible and discovered discrepancies between what it said and what the Roman church taught. He was part of that church and with dismay, he saw that human traditions had been invested with authority that belonged to the Bible alone. I want to insert here just one thought because we're going to deal with this tomorrow. When you read the Bible, you can discover discrepancies between what it says and what contemporary culture says and cultures demand. And one of the primary examples of that is the terrible confusion that our society is in regarding gender identification. Luther saw it as his responsibility to help his church set things right. For the sake of the truth and for the sake of the people. Because to uncover and expose truth from the Bible is to follow in the living stream of the Reformation. And that's still our mission. It's our calling. And it is called faithfulness. For example, when the Bible says that no homosexual will inherit the kingdom of heaven, it's not unjust or unkind to expose that truth and teach that truth to people who are preparing for baptism, for example. It's called faithfulness. That's what God's word says. And it's not unjust to hold to that. It's called faithfulness. To be an uncompromising 
voice for Bible truth. Because there are those in our own age who would deny and reverse history. But how, now I want to ask you, but how true was Luther himself to sola scriptura? And in answering that question, I have to share with you my own story of discovering some amazing facts. And in doing so, call attention to another one of the reformers, one that could be called the forgotten reformer, because he's hardly ever mentioned, and that happens to be Andreas Karlstedt. Back in 1970-71, when I was at Andrews University, I was still a Lutheran. I hadn't made my decision yet. I was deeply immersed in trying to discover the truth. And when I began to dig into Luther's writings, again, driven, driven by my own spiritual crisis, I got a major shock. I'm telling you, it was a shock. God had already gotten my attention when my wife became a Seventh-day Adventist. And metaphorically, it was like being hit over the head with a two-by-four. I often compare it to Moses and the burning bush. I used to wonder why it was that bush burning in the desert. Well, the bush was burning to get his attention, to get Moses' attention, because God had something important to say to him and something he wanted him to do. And sometimes God has to do that to us you know, even dramatically, get our attention. Not always easy, it wasn't for me. But I believe without wavering that it was him that did it. Anyway, up until then, I had trusted Luther completely. God used him, he, he did. If I had a question, I checked his works. I had all of his commentaries. <clears throat> I, am, I implicitly trusted Luther's brave and courageous assertion, given the circumstances that his conscience was captive to the word of God alone. And I believe he meant it. I still do. I still believe he meant it. And there was more to the story than what I'm sharing now, but this was a major part of what made it necessary for me to leave the Lutheran Church for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And here was the amazing fact. I discovered that Luther was not unaware of the Sabbath. Even at the time of the Reformation, there were many Christians who observed the Seventh-day Sabbath. In Holland, for example, there were many Sabbatarian uh, Anabaptists. That's where Karlstad eventually went to live among them. There were Sabbatarian Anabaptists who appeared after 1527 
and formed congregations in Moravia and Bohemia and Silesia and Holland. And it was in 1524 that Karlstadt, Luther's colleague, wrote a tract on the Sabbath. But Luther didn't let him publish it in Wittenberg. So he went to Jena in Holland to have it published. And in that tract, he wrote that Saturday is the Sabbath. He based it on scripture. And that there should be a radical rest from labor on that day. And Luther was apprehensive about Karlstad's interest in the Sabbath, and he responded in a letter to Melanchthon, and I quoted part of it, I think, yesterday. And he said, if Karlstad writes more on the Sabbath, Sunday must give way, and the Sabbath, that is Saturday, must be kept holy. That was Luther. So here, Luther admitted that Saturday, the seventh day, is the biblical Sabbath. And the relationship of those two strong men, Luther and Karlstadt, had been deteriorating before that because, because of Karlstadt's involvement in the violence that had erupted in Wittenberg. And besides some disagreements on the Lord's Supper as well. And here's the amazing fact. Luther joined with secular authority, persuading the elector Frederick of Saxony to dismiss Karlstadt from the university faculty and banish him from Saxony. Union of church and state. And when I saw that, can you imagine how I felt? Karlstadt went to live among the Sabbatarian Anabaptists in Holland. What had happened to religious liberty? To freedom of conscience? How could Luther do this after saying, my conscience is captive to the word of God? And in my study carol in the seminary library at Andrews, I was faced with this. Luther was a scholar of the biblical languages. Hebrew and Greek, as well as Latin. And his respect for the inspired text of the Bible was so profound that he dare not tamper with it. So I checked his German Old Testament, and I was pleased to discover that he translated the Sabbath commandment Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, accurately. Even though he followed the Catholic numbering and referred to it as the third commandment. 
His German translation reads like this. Gedenke des Sabbatages, das du ihn heiligest. Sechs Tage sollst du arbeiten und alle deine Werk tun. Aber am siebenten Tage ist der Sabbat des Herrn, deines Gottes. Now, if you uh, retranslate that into English, it reads, remember the Sabbath day, that you keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Luther dared not tamper with that. He had such regard for the word of God. Now we know that he began work on that translation right after his return to Wittenberg from, Wart from the Wartburg in 1522. So it was highly probable that he was working on Exodus at the time that Karlstad was writing about the Sabbath. And in 1529, Luther published his large catechism. And I meant to take it with me here for you, but I forgot. I'm sorry about that, but I have his large catechism. It's found in uh, the Book of Concord, which is the, the volume of Lutheran confessions that date back to that time. And so in 1529, he published his large catechism it was a textbook for pastors uh, preparing people for church membership. And I had turned to it in my copy of the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, and my jaw dropped when I discovered the liberties that Luther had taken with the biblical text regarding the Sabbath commandment in his catechism. He dared not touch it when it came to translating the Bible, but when he wrote his catechism, he completely changed the commandment. Listen to his translation in his catechism. It's very short. Du sollst den Feiertag heiligen. You shall hallow a day of rest. And I'm telling you, I literally sat there with my mouth open. I could hardly believe what I was seeing. He didn't follow the biblical text when he wrote his catechism, but the ecclesiastical tradition of Catholicism. It's not a translation, but, a, but it's an interpretation and a wrong one. The literal meaning of the commandment is completely altered. The truth is completely transformed and obscured. Do you see that? You shall hallow a day of rest. That's deception. Luther, my hero, 
The Bible says that God hallowed, sanctified, made holy the seventh day of the week. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and by doing so, made it holy. God himself made it holy. The commandment says that we keep it holy by observing it. How do we keep it holy? By entering that rest by faith. And Luther radically altered both of those aspects. By his translation, Luther made the commandment command what in fact it does not command. And this glaring distortion is further exposed in his explanation of the Sabbath commandment in his catechism. Listen to this. He says, first of all, that the commandment does not concern Christians in a literal sense. And then, secondly, he argues for the observance of Sunday not on the, on the basis of biblical evidence, but on the business of tradition, expediency, and good order. You see, because there are no biblical sources supporting the observance of the first day of the week, Luther could not use any. And so he resorted to his deceptive argument. Now what is the vital lesson here? It's study the Bible, not the catechism. And after his rejection of the commandment's literalism, he makes this astounding statement in his catechism. It's found on page 378 in the Book of Concord. Quote, Since so much depends on God's word, that no holy day is sanctified without it, and he's right on that, we must realize that God insists upon a strict observance of this commandment and will punish all who despise his word and refuse to hear and learn it, especially at the times appointed. Once again, I sat with my mouth open. I sat dumbfounded. Appointed by whom, I asked. God or man? God or church? God or Luther? If he had said that with regard to the Bible Sabbath, the seventh day, it would be consistent with biblical testimony and the keeping of that day would constitute the obedience of faith. 
But because he said it with respect to Sunday, which is not meant by Exodus 20, verse 8 through 10, it is not consistent with sola scriptura. Luther made the commandment command what it does not command. And by, so in do, by doing so, he rejected what it does, in fact, command. And the clincher for me was the realization that Luther's altering of the commandment was contrary to sola scriptura and to his own principle that, that the Bible is always to be interpreted literally unless the context indicates otherwise. The literal and obvious meaning of the Sabbath commandment is clear. The context does not allow for any other interpretation. And one who reads it with a mind unburdened by human and ecclesiastical tradition or cultural demands, everybody keeps Sunday. Have you heard that? Will understand what, what God's will is and by faith, by faith, obey his will. That's what I was faced with. What was I going to do? And this is precisely why so many people find their way eventually to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And why that principle has to be maintained by us. What should I do? Follow the Bible or Luther? I could come to only one honest conclusion. The Bible is right. And while Luther was right on many things, he was wrong on this one. I think we'll close here. Tomorrow is going to be very significant, I think, because we're going to bring all of this down to the present day. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.